This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid This Week. All of us experience joy at some time in our lives, but you might say that comes with a price because you, me, everyone has felt and will again feel alone. In the words of Sylvia Plath, the author, the loneliness of the soul in its appalling self-consciousness is horrible and overpowering. And this week on God Forbid, we look at the science and the theology of loneliness, its causes and the cure, which is love, by the way. And on the panel, we have two experts who've taken their own journey on this path personally and professionally. Sue Love is a pastoral care coordinator with Hammond Care, which provides aged and dementia residential care and health and community services. In our Sydney studio, Sue Love, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you, James. And in Brisbane, Naam Kozak. He's a psychologist who's worked with kids, adults and couples. He's a former senior school counsellor at John Paul College. And his research on social connection has been published in the International Journal of Social Psychiatry. Naam Kozak, welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me. So you first, Naam. Sometimes loneliness is mild, circumstantial, fleeting, insignificant. It can also be this most unbearable burden. What is loneliness? Why is it such an integral part of being human? Sure. And I, I love how you said it's an integral part of being human because I think loneliness is a healthy indicator that we need something. Um, so if you feel lonely, you're in a way that's good. There's a need being highlighted. You're in a situation um, where you feel disconnected and it's a chance to do something. It could be existential, like an awareness of being fundamentally separated from other people. Um, it could be emotional, like you could be in, in a romantic relationship that is rewarding and yet still feel lonely, like still feel lonely for social connection. Yeah, there, there are a range of different types of loneliness that you can experience. Sue Love, as a young woman, you had no shortage of friends to party with, but you felt deeply alone. How is that possible? Absolutely. I don't think it matters how many people you surround yourself with. It comes from inside. I believe for me, my loneliness was a loneliness of my soul. So no matter how many people were around me, it ends. You have to go home or you have to retreat to your own space. And I think so often all that searching for company, always out looking, always trying to find... It just led me into trouble anyway. So, so one, mm. at every stage of the day, you have to end up looking in the mirror and unless you're Absolutely. friends with that person, Absolutely. you can feel lonely. Yeah. So th when I say loneliness of soul, yeah, I really believe that that was my, what my problem was anyway. Yeah. Sue, there was a transformation in your life where this all changed. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So for half of my life, I suppose, so for 30 odd years, I can honestly say I was lonely. The transformation came when I accepted Jesus as my saviour. Everything changed after that point. I think what prevented me from doing that beforehand was I was afraid, you know, Jesus is the light. I'm, I was afraid that that light would expose just how ugly I really was. You know, that uh, when you're not happy with yourself, it's, it's really hard to be with other people. But you didn't think of it in those terms. You actually were homeless I'd and struggling. Had place, yeah, I, had, uh, I was homeless at one stage. I was couch surfing with friends. I was living in a combi van. And for many years, your brother, who's a Christian, tried to introduce you to Christianity. Nine years, <laughs> nine years that man faithfully told me about Jesus. You but initially Jesus, you thought it was weird. It wasn't for me. I didn't think I... You know why, James? Because I didn't think I was good enough. I was afraid... That's, I, I can't cut it. Is that it. why? I can't cut it. In the early years, was it that or was it that you thought Christianity was a bit superstitious? I think at first I thought Christianity was too superstitious. It, it, over a period of time I watched him and I started to think I want what he's got and that's when I thought I wasn't good enough to be able to have what he had. And many yeah. steps on the journey. Many steps on the journey. And, the, yes, that's over a period of nine years. And you're in a wonderful part of the journey now with I'm your work. I'm in a wonderful part. 
Absolutely. Because you give. You've got your aged care residents who you yes. give to each day and yes. every day and their families. And their families, absolutely, yeah. Well, let's go back to Naeem Kozak. He's a giver, but this is fun. I get to ask the psychologist the questions now. Tell me about your mother, Naeem. Sure. Uh, well, my mum was a Catholic nun for 10 years. Um, prior to that, she was uh, in a Methodist family, and I think it was a bit part calling, part rebellion <laughs> that led her to the Catholic Church, uh, much to her, her mother's horror. Um, she was there for, that's how she experienced the uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s, by being in a convent completely separated from it. <laughs> Go, girl. Um, that's right. I know. She was one of the Grey Sisters, which are, um, they're called the Family Care Sisters now, and they're a lovely bunch that um, care for families that don't have the help that they would otherwise need. But after, yeah, after those 10 years, she felt that in addition to caring for other people's kids, she would like to have some of her own. And so she left the convent um, and responded to an ad in, I think it was the Catholic Weekly, um, <laughs> which said, widower with seven children seeks wife. And she thought, I want to meet that guy. And that was my dad. And that was how they met. My goodness. Wow. The sound of wow. music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. What, they took down the curtains and made clothes for you, just like in The Sound of Music? <laughs> no, it was a bit different because um, she married quite hastily. Like they had known each other for six weeks. And um, in that time, dad had managed to not reveal that he was an alcoholic. Um, so, yeah, it was it made for interesting times for me growing up as the son of a nun and an alcoholic Czech migrant. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's very sad that you mention that. But, of course, um, people who know uh, anything about addiction will tell you that there is a profound loneliness at the core. Is that uh, something that you sensed in your father? Um, not at the time. At the time, it seemed uh, he was cold and distant because he was either um, at home and not, and not present through his drinking or at work. He was a workaholic as well. But in retrospect, like when I became an adult, I could read into what his experience was because he, you know, he escaped from um, communist Czech Republic at that time um, alone, leaving his family behind, um, seeing a few horrific things um, and experiencing a few really difficult things. But I, I don't think at the, like at that time in the past, they had all of the you know, opportunities we have now, like psychologists, etc., to try and process things. So I can see how it's like it was tempting to numb his experience through alcohol and I can't really, you know, judge him for that. Mm. Oh, I can, but I try mm. not to. Mm. <laughs> like I can mm. see that where he was coming from. Have you forgiven mm. him? Absolutely. Were and you able to say that to him, Naim? Yes, I was Lovely. really blessed to be able to say that to him. Wow. Mm. Before he died. Mm. That's right. Mm. That's right. So I, I guess I took on some loneliness myself um, through feeling I'm I'm the only one who's dealing with the the situation that I was in. Um, you know, grew up feeling distant from dad, and then when he was brain injured when I was thirteen, um, then I was like, oh, well, now there's no opportunity for connection there. Mm. It wasn't until I was at university and feeling um, very, well, I suppose, depressed in in retrospect and and separated and alone. Um, feeling that uh, everything was in black and white or grey and I couldn't see colour in the world anymore. Um, uh, it was kind of in that context that I ended up going on this camp, not because it was this Christian camp, but because it was at the beach. And I had a conversation with a person and uh, had a four-hour conversation with someone who really, I felt like he really understood me and where I was coming from. That was kind of my introduction to both psychology and Christianity for myself. Because um, at the end of that, I was like, oh my goodness, what just happened? All we've done is talk, but I feel hope. I feel so much lighter. And that's kind of that kind of started my journey of wanting to spread that experience to other people where you get to share where you're vulnerable and be met with acceptance. Are you talking about sharing Christianity or sharing quality psychology? Both. Although, like a lot of my clients would not know that I'm Christian. They would just know this is a warm, friendly guy. Um, but like St. Francis, you know, you, you preach the gospel at all time, if necessary, resorting to words. Um, I did for a couple of years work with a Catholic youth ministry called the National Evangelization Teams, um, where you, you do openly, you know, share your faith journey and say, you know, 
if this is useful for you, take something from it. If not, don't. And it was a great ministry. It used jokes and songs and skits and all that kind of thing as, as a way of communicating the message as far removed from shoved down your throat as you can get. But in recent times, unless someone asks me, I don't volunteer or share that part of myself. On RN, it's God Forbid. We're with Naam Kozak and Sue Love. Up next, what science tells us about loneliness. We've known for a long time that chronic physical pain is not good for your health. Well, psychologists say loneliness is not physical, but a kind of social pain. And research shows it's not good for you either. That's both mental and physical health. Lynn Malcolm from All in the Mind spoke with Dr. Michelle Lim from the Swinburne University of Technology. She's scientific chair of the Australian Coalition to End Loneliness. Loneliness is very much associate of lower quality of life, poorer health, and things like physical health symptoms in which we never really quite got our heads around. So things like more nausea, more headaches, more stomach problems, and also depression that increases your risk of depression and social anxiety. One thing that we do know, and definitely from our research in the US, is that loneliness actually is an antecedent for more problematic mental health symptoms. That's not to say that just because you're lonely, you definitely have a mental health problems. But if you are reporting loneliness, you're more likely to experience higher levels of, say, depression or social anxiety or paranoia in non-clinical levels, maybe in the next six months. So we do see this predictive relationship when we actually track these symptoms over time. So when it comes to physical health, what's the mechanism between physical health and loneliness? So there's a lot of research that looks at how loneliness shares the same neural pathways as uh, physical pain. It's almost like if you want to think of loneliness as a social pain. So when we feel pain, we process more stress in our body. So we have higher levels of cortisol and things like that. And those then actually affect our health. So if you think of loneliness a little bit as a, a social pain, sharing the same neurocorrelates as physical pain, it's no wonder that it stresses our body if we feel lonely. And it kind of makes sense because if you think about the way humans function, we're almost kind of like safer as a group. But if you feel like no one has your back, even the way you survey your social environment is quite different. So say, for example, if I am walking down a dark street with a stranger by myself versus someone I trust and I care about, the physiology of our bodies actually functions quite differently. So the context might be the same, but who we are with actually depends on how we actually process whether that's actually a stressful task or not. And how important is uh, being in a relationship or having close connection with family? There's some indications that being married, of course, you know, the quality of those relationships do need to be measured as well. But living with someone or a spouse or a partner can buffer you, definitely not a guarantee. And also having not so much actually number of people around you, but meaningful family relationships. We did find in this report that Australians are actually also really bad at having relationships with their neighbours. They may not kind of fare fairly well with friends and family, but then when it comes to the community, they're actually showing really very, very poor connections with those neighbours that they live with. That's Dr Michelle Lim, the scientific chair of the Australian Coalition to End Loneliness, and she was speaking with Lynn Malcolm from RN's All in the Mind. Sue Love, I saw you nodding when Michelle said we... About have... the neighbours? Yeah, yeah, why? Absolutely. I'm... I think we live busy lives in Australia. I think we're all rushing to work, rushing home from work, and often we'll just give a quick wave to the neighbour. You know, society is in Australia. We, our neighbours, we don't even have to see them. We've got fences, we've got garage doors that you open with a clicker and close with a clicker. We don't actually have to see because it's it's hard work having neighbours. It's hard work being open to let people in. 
We don't want to go the hard yards. Because you don't get to choose who that we person don't get is. To that's exactly our neighbours are put there. <laughs> and in thing. a way, yeah. that's uh, kind of a microcosm of one's existence on earth, wouldn't you say, Nayan Kozak? Absolutely, I'd agree. Um, I was reading something recently saying that in the West, our experience is becoming more and more atomized, like more and more separate. Um, yes. We can live in our own digital bubble um, where we read mm -hmm. um, things on, on Facebook or wherever that only agree with our point of view, and that's not necessarily challenged. Um, we can walk around the streets with our earphones in, um, and I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I think it was Mother Teresa who said that the, the poverty of the East is the poor are hungry for a piece of bread, but the great poverty of the West is loneliness. And it's still true today, in, in fact, probably worse than uh, when she was with us. Well, that's certainly what the yeah. statistics are showing. Yeah. Sue Love, you've been a pastoral worker at Hammond Care for 12 years. Yes. Tell me the different kinds of loneliness you've seen. Okay, my day starts. I walk in and people are calling out already. Residents have woken up and they've had a difficult night, they're tired, they're confused, they're lonely. They're lonely. If you come and sit with them, you come and hold a hand, put an arm around, we can do that in aged care. We can put our arms around people. We're allowed to have that physical contact. In fact, they long for that. That's a loneliness that needs to be fulfilled. And the minute I walk away, they'll be calling out again. That's been removed from other parts other of society. Pa absolutely. You can't touch, you can't. Uh, my, both my daughter-in-laws are teachers and, yeah, you know, they're finding that's what it I was thinking really of. difficult with little kids. Yeah, they're because not allowed. in this moral panic era, I mean, in the yeah. old days, it was nothing for a, a teacher to give a give cuddle a if mm. they'd hurt themselves. I would hate to see that ever come into play, you know, in, in aged care. I would hate for that to become something we couldn't do. So what yeah. the, the loneliness there is the loneliness of Alzheimer's, which is yes. a kind of losing yes. yourself as a friend. That's right, yes. But there's loneliness you see in family members. In the family members, probably even more so. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm reminded of just a gentleman I spoke to yesterday who just... How do you bring your person in for the first time into a, a, a place, it's a, it's a building, and you hand them over to us and you say, all right, I trust you to care for my beautiful wife who I've been married to for 60 years and I have to go. I have to go home now. And they walk out the door and the, the shoulders are drooped and the loneliness is just unbearable for them, especially at first. They say, as we heard in that story, loneliness is a kind of social pain. Do you see that pain etched in that husband's face? Absolutely. absolutely. It, it's pain. It's no less pain than it would be if they'd, you know, had their uh, ulcer in their arm or something. Yeah. And that ulcer can get treated by a yes. dermatologist. Yes. Loneliness of soul, as I see it, is... It's not treatable for a lot of people. They, they take that with them every single day. So, Nahum, in Brisbane, you're a successful psychologist. You're happily married. You're loved. <laughs> Does that mean you are never lonely? Oh, no, that's not true at all. In fact, I think um, when you introduce children into the equation... Um, I like to use a trampoline analogy. Um, so when you're growing up, you learn how to jump on the trampoline yourself and become a successful person individually. Um, and then you, once you've got your rhythm, you, you stuff that up by falling in love with someone. <laughs> and then you're both trying to jump on the trampoline and not you know, steal each other's bounce or bounce someone off or whatever. And then you've, you've just got your rhythm going and then you introduce another person by, by having a child. There's lots of opportunity for <laughs> things to feel disconnected or to feel lonely. Um, I do a range of work with... Um, um, actually, it, it seems to be dads that are finding me, dads who've got um, babies or toddlers and they're finding the experience in some ways lonely, even though they have this beautiful, you know, they, they love their, their kid, they love their, uh, their partner, but time is a factor. They can't spend time with their friends that they used to. They can't invest in themselves in the way that they used to. But, you know, as, as yeah, the, question, the original question was about myself, um, I wouldn't want to have loneliness taken out of my life because I think it's a healthy indication of a need. So if I'm feeling lonely, it's, it's an invitation I see to maybe try something differently. Just like if I feel hungry, I need to eat something. If I feel lonely, I need to think about what will nourish me at this time. That's kind of how I try to look at it. 
Well, Sue, you spend most of your hours giving to others in your church, your community, at Hammond Care. Are you lonely when you return to an empty home? Absolutely not. No, not at all. Never? That's my... Well, if I'm honest, no. I rather like my solitude and I I guess I have enough people in my life. I'm fulfilled in my my daily work and church and all the rest. You never long for a romantic relationship? Not anymore. I used to. I used to. When I was younger, I used to. I, I don't anymore. I'm... I, I just believe I've got the company of the Lord in my life and he's seriously enough. So I live on a property right now. Um, I've, there's horses, there's chickens, there's, I've always got something to do. Is, is there something isolating in having, how does one put it, God as your best friend? Ah, uh, uh, that sounds a bit... No, no, it's not, no. Well, let me put it this way. People aren't supposed to feel lonely in the church. According to Christian teaching, it's the body of Christ. Body of Christ, absolutely. And uh, the community of believers. Yes. But we know people are lonely in church. Oh, yes. Does that make the stigma of loneliness perhaps greater for Christians, not milder? Um, that people can be lonely in church? Yes. I think people can be lonely in a dance club or in the RSL club down the road as well. I, I don't know that it's just the church that people feel lonely in, in a community surrounding. Well, overall, we, we know that people in church are less lonely, but that's what I'm wondering. There that still pe- is loneliness Exactly. There. And I wonder yeah. if it might even be more pronounced for them, especially seeing they have this sort of church expectation to feel fulfilled in community. Nahum, what do you think? Yeah, I have, I have a hunch about that, sure. Um, I think wherever we feel we can't present our true selves, that's a big invitation for loneliness to occur because we can't be connected with someone else if we're not being who we are, if that makes sense. Um, and, yeah, if, if someone approaches church or, yeah, as, as you say, Sue, like a, a dance class or whatever yeah. with... I'm, I'm actually not bringing myself to the table. I'm, I'm not worth it or I'm too scared or I have been hurt before um, by opening up, then, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's a chance to be lonely. And unfortunately, churches are made up of humans who are flawed. In fact, some would say that's the precondition for getting into church because we all get it wrong somehow and we need something more. But, um, yeah, sometimes when we're, you know, in, um, some, some of us feel the need to present a perfect picture um, without any flaws. And then, yeah, I think you're just headed for feeling disconnected because it's, it's not you that you're, you're showing. Nahum, being in a marriage or a relationship is not necessarily a silver bullet cure for loneliness. In fact, there's a study that suggests loneliness within marriage is a primary cause of infidelity, yes? Absolutely. I think you're probably referring to the work of um, Drs John and Julie Schwartz Gottman. Usually in a relationship, like a, a, um, a relationship that's going well, will have trust and commitment as part of that. Um, where trust starts to break down, you feel less and less comfortable sharing the things you might get hurt talking about. And that's the major cause, actually, of infidelity is um, feeling sort of distrustful and lonely within your marriage or, um, or relationship. And yes, finding there's someone else here who, oh, this person's talking to me and acting like I'm interesting and willing to talk about things that I'm struggling with. And that's, yeah, that, that can be the start of, of infidelity often. So it's not necessarily something like a, a wandering eye or lust. No. Um, and that was a surprise finding of that particular study. Like the, the everyone thought the odds on favourite for infidelity was just sexual desire. Um, whereas it turned out, no, the, um, the top reason was loneliness and feeling disconnected within your relationship. Well, Sue Love, Christian teaching is that marriage vows are sacred and shouldn't be broken. And one imagines that certainly the case if you are succumbing to sort of a carnal lust as your motive. But as Nahum says, if your marriage is empty and you long for a connection, under those circumstances, having an affair to find someone to feel connected doesn't seem quite so sinful, would you say? I'd have to disagree. I'd have to disagree. Because its foundation is dishonest? Yeah. Yep. 
And I think just because something feels like it should be right doesn't mean that it is. What's your advice, name to the couples you work with? A patient says, look, I'm empty in my marriage and I've met someone who makes me feel full. Each um, each situation is, is different and um, it's never my job to make decisions for people. If someone comes to me and they're, they're talking about a relationship that they don't feel fulfilled in, one of the things that I might suggest is couples counselling. Um, and if they did couples counselling with me, what we would do first is assessment. Um, so I would meet with both people and go, hey, talk to me about what's happening, um, what's going on. Let me get to know your relationship. What are your hopes and dreams and expectations within this relationship? What are the things that are a struggle for you? That gives me a great deal of information to go, okay, here is the story as you've told me, as you've told me through your questionnaires, as you've told me through our various meetings. What is it that you would like to do given that this is the situation that you have? It's always, from my perspective, it's always like, what is is it that you want to do now that you have a, a broader range of facts at your disposal? On our end, it's God forbid. We're with Sue Love, Pastoral Care Coordinator at Hammond Care, and Naeem Kozak, a psychologist at North Brisbane Psychologists. Up next, the philosophy of loneliness. Diane Enns is a professor of philosophy at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. And when she wrote a book about love, it received international interest. Interesting, though, when she teaches about loneliness, she senses awkwardness from her students. And she told RN's Philosopher's Zone that loneliness seems to be an emotion people don't want to talk about. Everyone, I think, is afraid to talk about their own loneliness, uh, afraid to admit it. But maybe it's a bigger fear than that. I've been reading this uh, psychiatrist, Frida Fromm Reichman was her name. She was a 20th century psychiatrist who lived mostly in the U.S. And she wrote this essay on loneliness that was, I think, going to become a bigger work. But then she died. And so we have this short essay about it. And she says that People are terrified of, I guess, admitting their own loneliness and are in complete denial. So, yes, people have this kind of reaction when I say, I don't even have to say anything about my own loneliness. I just say I'm writing about loneliness. And then there's this this heavy silence. I taught about it in a first year course. And I just got the feeling that everyone was sort of uncomfortable with it. And from Reichman says it's because it has to do with our fear of death, because loneliness has something to do with death. We're afraid of the loneliness of death. I'm not so sure. I think the fear of loneliness has to do with being afraid to look as though you are unlovable, that nobody loves you, that you don't have enough friends. So nobody wants to admit that they're lonely. But it still doesn't make sense to me why people wouldn't want to talk about loneliness, even other people's loneliness. Loneliness, for me, is really an emotion. It's it's an intense Uh, craving for attachment. And loneliness is on the rise. We have a lot of popular writers now who are addressing this, like Susan Pinker in The Village Effect, or um, Sherry Turkle, who, who wrote a book called Alone Together. And I think it's partly because of the new technologies, new communication technologies that we have, but also because our community life is changing, our social life The family structure is changing. And for a lot of people, there's some nostalgia involved in this look at loneliness uh, because everything seemed great (laughs) decades ago when people had families and communities to look after each other. But there's also a real fear of what technology is doing to us. That's the professor of philosophy, Diane Enns, from Ryerson University in Toronto. Well, Naeem Kozak, is she right? A fear about the future and a nostalgia about the past with respect to community and connection and loneliness? 
Yeah, I'd agree with her. I think um, we've had a far more rapid pace of change than ever before. Um, you know, it used to be the case that, you know, of course you would go to, I don't know, the Scouts or the RSL or, you know, be engaged in a range of um, activities and, and things, you know, church, where you would see social connection. But now it's all optional. Um, and it's it's good that there's change, but I think that we don't necessarily have something that replaces those things yet. I think we're still getting good at how do we then construct our community. In the yeah. way that a mortgage forces you to repay it f- weekly or fortnightly, uh, the discipline of wealth accumulation, we don't have that in the social space. We're renters and we can let ourselves perhaps end up without owning a home or out having relationships. Yeah, I suppose so. Very economic of you. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. It is true. We, yeah. we might not end up owning a home or, as you say, not owning a family or a relationship or because it is it is easy to... Mm. Watch telly. Got huge and screens in their lounge rooms and now. tiny screens in their and pocket. Yeah, wherever they go, on the train. Everyone, no, everyone's got earplugs in. Maybe it also means that we don't <laughs> stop to learn to love ourselves sometime either. That's true. Sue Love, we heard in that report from Professor Enns that uh, loneliness could be ultimately a fear of death, the fear of being totally alone from everyone you've ever known. Is that confirmed or rejected by your experience working in aged care? It's difficult for me because with Alzheimer's, toward the end, they're not really communicating in any way that they are fearful. But for the families, that fear of death is, it's intense at that time. So if we're sitting in the room with someone whose mum is dying, quite often for the um, children of, you can sense that there's a real fear of dying, a real fear. They don't want to talk about funeral. They don't want to talk, you know, I'll say to them, you know, have you chosen a funeral director? No, I don't want to talk about that. So there, there is definitely that, definitely a fear. Not so much, I don't see it so much with our residents, but definitely the families. The family, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. And you, uh, with dying people and their families uh, weekly? Yes. Yes, sometimes a couple in a week, a couple in a week. And they've been they've been long-term residents. We've had them for one of them nine going on ten years, which is a really, really long time to survive with dementia and all the symptoms that go along with it. And toward the end, the families are so... They're exhausted from these ten years of upholding these people... But then they're faced with death, and it's a it's a really it's a it's an incredible time in the room. It's an incredible time. So death is very frightening for you too. No, it's not for me. I don't I don't feel fear from for myself. I don't because I know I'm eternally saved. So I'm I'm okay. Where I go is to a better place. But for others, I feel a lot of fear for them. Really, you feel for the those. I feel for them. Yes. If a person dies without finding Christ, yes. that gives you yeah, fear. Yeah, it does. It does give me fear. It also might give you a motivation to want to proselytize, which mightn't be appropriate professionally. It's, yes, it's not always. It's not. But, but you know, you, we can say, "Can I say a prayer for you? Can I read this Bible?" Will that verse be enough to, to get you? them into heaven? In your no, view, it's, no, it's not. But well, so it might good start. I guess it's the best thing that I can do for them. It's bringing in scripture into that room if they will let me. And if they let me, who knows? The conversation can go from there. But that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, on one part of your life, you fear these people have a terrible, terrible fate. In another part of your life, you're not able to do anything about it because that's the workspace. Yes, yes. And that's God's job as well. What do you think of this, Nahum? I was nodding when um, when Sue was talking about um, the effect on families of, of Alzheimer's. Um, my my own mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and passed away eight years later. And um, my sister and I, yeah, during that time, gradually lost her. Although, interestingly, her emotions stayed intact. When she didn't recognise us by name, I still felt she recognised me even if, she, even if towards the end she didn't recognise me as her son, sometimes it would be like, you know, are you, <laughs> are you just this friendly person who stepped in? I still felt like there was, I don't know, an emotional recognition of me and um, that she was, she was still there. When she died, she was aware of quite a lot through that whole experience 
but we yeah we were kind of grieving afresh at each stage and each part of the change there mm. and I think it's you constantly renegotiating like how is my relationship with this person and how do I do this and when she was a few years into her journey and um, when she just moved into high care so about three years before she before she died she through kind of halting words like she wasn't able to express herself fully but she could she got herself across um she talked about death and she talked about um saying feeling scared and um so we just i just i don't know had had a conversation about that and um made it okay to talk about that and for me not to shy away just because i felt uncomfortable um and we kind of ended up coming to i was like hey mum well maybe it'll work this way maybe Sorry. <laughs> it's okay, Nahum. Maybe I'll help you from this side. Mm-hmm. My sister and I will help you from this side. And as you step over, Dad will help you from the other side. And maybe it'll work out okay. And, um, you know, whether or not that's how things play out when we die, I think there's a lot. It's a very mysterious thing, and it's a journey that we all go on in the end. Um, that... Um, yeah, she drew comfort from that conversation, and um, yeah. So I don't, I don't have definitive knowledge about after death this or after death that, but um, I do think we can take the time that we do have together to offer comfort, comfort to one another. Well, thank you for sharing that, and you can say that you did give her comfort, and that should give you comfort now. Yeah, I, I feel, I feel good about where she's at. <laughs> um, she's not constantly sort of degrading and needing to we had a very interesting situation kind of come up where you know we would we would go and visit mum and might feed her etc and there's a, a certain way that like a baby bird orients their head towards the you know the the food that's being offered to them like mum was doing that mm. and that was kind of a new thing like that was kind of re- regressing and we at that stage had um one of our two daughters had been born and uh, it was the same motion that she was doing when we were feeding her at home as like a, a, a two-year-old. And um, just this interesting interposition of these two um, people so close to me, like seeing the, the face of my two-year do- two-year-old daughter at the same time as sort of working with my mum was just um, um, was a bit overwhelming. But um, like there was distress at mum going, but also comfort from, you know, my daughter rising if that makes sense like that this is part of the whole process and this is where we're all going to end up anyway and there's i don't know we're part of this whole that might be greater than just our individual experience makes perfect Mm. sense to me name thank you you're a good listener, James. <laughs> well, <laughs> Naim Kozak, that'll be uh, $250, by the way. <laughs> He's a psychologist at North Brisbane Psychologists. First few visits, bulk build as well. And we're with Sue Love, pastoral care coordinator at Hammond Care. Up next, we continue our exploration of the pain of loneliness, but what can also be a joy of spending time alone. Isolation can cause loneliness, but are the isolated always lonely? Sarah Maitland is the author of the bestseller How to Be Alone, and after her marriage ended, she moved from the city and spent the last 20 years on her own in a remote Scottish valley, 15 kilometres from the nearest shop. Journalist Maggie Ferguson tracked her down for a piece she was writing on loneliness for The Economist magazine, and she told Amanda Vanston on RN's Counterpoint she did not find a woman suffering in silence. Indeed, she wasn't suffering at all. No, not not at all. She became absolutely wedded to her isolation. Well, solitude is probably a better word for it. She had all her life suffered from depression, but when she began to kind of enjoy this solitude, her depression lifted and never came back. She now thinks of urban life and being surrounded by people with absolute horror. So for her, aloneness and solitude has been, you know, a great kind of saving grace. And I'm sure, not only for her, I'm sure it, 
it is for other people too. I wonder whether the people who feel lonely are happy with themselves but want company or whether they're just not happy with themselves. Uh, that's interesting. I suspect with the older people, many of them have had perfectly happy lives until they've lost their partner. So they're sort of fundamentally, many of them, happy with themselves but just hate being alone. But loneliness in the UK now is a problem for children aged as young as six, for teenagers, for people in their 30s who have missed the boat and not got a partner and had children. So all, all the way right up until old people, um, there are kind of shoals of lonely people all over the UK. And I imagine it's not just a UK problem. I do think the children complaining of loneliness and, and people in their you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, I think some of them probably have not really been happy with themselves ever. I spoke to a wonderful Benedictine monk, Lawrence Freeman, and he called loneliness a failed solitude. Mm. He, he said, you know, loneliness contains a terrible feeling of failure and there's shame in it. That's true, but he, people but he does it. offer hope, doesn't he? He does offer hope. Mm. So he believes that through meditation you can come to terms with yourself, come to discover and accept your own uniqueness. And so the solitude of that sort is the kind of key to overcoming loneliness. I sort of felt sad reading your article. That when one of the people you're interviewing said to you, thank God London property is so extortionate, because yes. she can't afford to live alone, and therefore she's got company. I thought, oh, yes. dear, you know, how... That's right. If you suffer from depression, you can go to a doctor. If you're suffering from grief, you know that you know, you're quite likely to go through various stages and come out the other end. Yeah. But there's, you know, who do you turn to if you're lonely? Who, who's going to kind of get you out of it? That's Maggie Ferguson, literary editor of The Tablet and author of How Does It Really Feel to Be Lonely in The Economist magazine. She was speaking with RN's Amanda Vanston on CounterPoint. Well, Naam Kozak, she asks, who do you see if you're lonely? Uh, if I need a friend or a lover, you as a psychologist can't be either for me. You can only hmm. provide pain management. Is that right? I like to come back to what you were saying before about um, loneliness being a symptom. Um, and I think something, a lot, some of the work that I do with people is, um, okay, this is the experience. What is it a symptom of? What is the need? If it's a need to have your pain witnessed by another human being or have your vulnerability witnessed by someone else and to be told you're still you're still okay, this does not invalidate you as a person, that can be some of the work that, that happens in session. If the need is, um, I'm lonely because I don't accept myself, like that's that's another path of treatment you might go down. Like how do I how do I accept myself? How do I discover what I'm here for? What what strengths I have? What I'm what I might be passionate about? I like um, David White's work. He has a book out called The Three Marriages. The word marriage can be so loaded. So anyway, but the three marriages in his book are the ones that we normally think of marriage. So to a partner or to our our calling, our, our work, um, and the third marriage, you know, to yourself. So if I'm, if I'm looking at what the needs might be, I'm like, okay, well, what area, what area kind of lights up when I talk about the different things that might potentially be going on for you? We can point towards, you know, here's where it might be most beneficial to do work. Interesting. Sue Love, the analogy of the three marriages. I agree with, with a lot, but I also, I hear what was said by that person. The journalist Maggie Ferguson. Yeah, when she said people are ashamed of their loneliness. Mm. I don't think I'm ashamed of loneliness, which is why I won't admit it. I think that's one of the things that I have searched my own heart for so long. Um, is it because I'm old, older, and feel that I no longer need certain relationships in my life? Is it because I have so much going on in my life every day at work 
So I, I get that we live in denial about a lot of things. I know it's easy to say, oh, no, that's not me or it's not me. But I, have, I really have searched my heart about loneliness because, yes, I have felt absolute loneliness. And I understand that the loneliness that people feel, and you said it, Naeem, about the um, people not being who they are, hmm. not being real about who they are. And so, therefore, how can you not be lonely when you're trying to be something that you're not? Hmm. So uh, back to that being ashamed of being lonely, I think I would, have, I would say I've been there. Yeah, I'd admit that. I think sometimes we feel lonely and might automatically reach for um, another person. When I was originally getting into relationships, I'd meet a girl and things would be great for a time and I'd be like, great, this is the answer to my problems and lo and behold, it'd fall apart. And that happened sort of a few times um, until I stopped and was like, okay, I've I've been approaching this relationship thing as if it's going to solve my loneliness, as if it was, um, you know, we're two halves of a best friend locket and together we're going to, you know, be complete. But that doesn't do it. You just have twice as much brokenness, actually, if you think about it. Whereas the symbol for a couple relationship is two overlapping rings, so two whole people working together. I decided I, I won't go into a relationship until I learn how to be happily single. So I, I, I did that for a few years and learning about how do I be me really happily. And thank God I did because that was, that was kind of a precondition for a really happy couple relationship for me. Well, on RN, it's God forbid. We're with Naeem Kozak, a psychologist at North Brisbane Psychologists, and Sue Love, pastoral care coordinator at Hammond Care. Quiz up next. <laughs> Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. And this week we search for answers in the trivial pursuit of friends and lovers. And as always, we begin with the buzzers. Sue Love, who has love in her life. Test your buzzer. Jesus is my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) And psychologist Naeem Kozak, who treats people with relationship problems and compulsive behaviour. Test your buzzer. Ooh, loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Yes, they are. (laughs) Okay, here's the first question. In America, the Humane Society of Missouri helps lonely dogs by bringing in young children to A, pat them, B, read to them, C, wash them, or D, euthanize them. (laughs) (laughs) Loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Pat them. A. Okay. A. Both Naeem and Sue go for A, pat the dogs. Here's NBC News with a heartwarming answer. The Humane Society of Missouri is pulling out every trick in the book. Kids volunteer their time reading to pets that are waiting for a good home. Both wrong. You have to read to the dog. <laughs> oh <my goodness>. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. In the hit movie Castaway, Tom Hanks is stuck on a desert island after a plane crash with just one friend, Wilson. In one scene, the two get separated and Tom Hanks's character becomes desperately worried. That's Tom Hanks frantically searching for his friend Wilson in the movie Castaway. The question is, why was their friendship unusual? Jesus is my best friend. Wilson was a ball. Yes, you are quite correct, Sue Love, because Wilson was a volleyball. Hanks was uh, stranded all alone on the island and uh, over the months of isolation, he formed a personified friendship with this ball that had washed up on shore. I, for one, thought that Wilson was a lock for Best Supporting Oscar, but it wasn't to be. (laughs) Next question. This year is the 300th anniversary of the publication of Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe's novel about another castaway marooned on a desert island. This idea of being isolated uh, on a desert island or similar, in fact, is so popular that it has its own genre name in literary circles. What is that name? Is it Maroon-esque literature? Is it Robesonade literature? Or is it Castawellian? Loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Robinson-esque, B? A B, you agree, Sue? I do agree. Uh, yeah, well, actually, Robinson A it was, but you are correct. It was B. <laughs> the term was coined by the German writer Johann Gottfried Schnabel in the preface to his own book, The Island Stronghold. Robinson Aid literature is frequently classified as a subgenre of survivalist fiction. Okay, next question. Listen to these lyrics from a famous Beatles song, and then I'll ask you a question. 
Okay, question is, what's the name of the lonely priest that's described next in the lyrics? Ooh, loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Father McKenzie. That's Father right. McKenzie. Nahum <laughs> provides the answer, Sue the melody. Let's see if they're both right. Father McKenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Uh, there'll be a Nahum and Sue, both correct in their own way. <laughs> Next question. You were hoping we were going to sing along, weren't you? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> According to singer-songwriter Harry Nilsson, What's the loneliest number that you'll ever do? Jesus is my best friend. Number one. Well, is Sue right? Here's Harry to tell us. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Well done, Sue. Next question. What is the name of the Martin Scorsese film about the isolated loner cabbie played by Robert De Niro who famously says this? You talking to me? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Ooh, loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Is it Taxi Driver? You are quite correct. Mm. Travis Bickle is the Taxi Driver played by Robert De Niro. Taxi Driver, the name of the movie. Next question. Hikikomori is a Japanese word for A, people who never leave their rooms, B, people who live in forests, C, people who only dine by themselves at restaurants, or D, people who refuse to marry for career reasons. What was the word again? Hikikomori. Nobody. I want to say they dine by themselves. Dine by themselves? <laughs> Here's ABC 730 with the answer. For nearly three years, Yuto Onishi's world was his bedroom. Yuto refused all contact with friends and family, sneaking out only in the dead of night to eat. The Japanese call the condition hikikomori. There's the answer. A, hikikomori are the people who almost never leave their bedrooms. And it's actually believed that more than a million people have the condition in Japan. No one knows exactly why. They say perhaps it's related to autism or the high degree of conformity in Japanese culture, but it's a, a sad and fascinating phenomenon. Mm. Next question. This has nothing to do with loneliness, but it's news this week was just too good to pass up. Fundamentalist Christians in America have created a multi-million dollar giant replica of Noah's Ark in Kentucky. It's both a tourist attraction and a sort of propaganda anti-evolution tool. This was a few years back when they made it. But the creationist owners of the Ark are suing their insurance company this week. Why? Ooh, loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. It sank. <laughs> That's a close guess, but this is the answer and it is provable. The Ark suffered a million dollars worth of flood damage after heavy rains. <laughs> the, uh, the insurance company wouldn't pay, not because it was an act of God, but because it was a faulty workmanship, they say, that caused the damage that allowed the rain to cause the damage and therefore that wasn't covered by the insurance policy. But with that, we have got to the end of the quiz, and that means the end of God Forbid as well. But thank you, Sue Love, very much for being with us this week. Thank you very much for having me. And Naam Kozak, thank you too as well. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Sue Love is a pastoral care coordinator at Hammond Care. Naam Kozak, a psychologist at North Brisbane Psychologists. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. And if you'd like religion and ethics stories sent to you via email, do sign up for our weekly newsletter packed with information about your favourite RN religion and ethics and spirituality program, as well as news features, analysis and so forth. Just go to the abc.net.au forward slash religion page and look for the newsletter sign up bar at the bottom. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. God forbid.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.